you'll take your Bibles. Will you turn again to 1 Timothy chapter 1? 1 Timothy chapter 1. We've already been in 1 Timothy 1 once in our study of the conscience. Now we return to it again. 1 Timothy chapter 1. By my count, we come to our eighth message in this series. I don't know that we have eight more left. We do have a number of them left. Uh, We still have 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 to deal with, so we have a long ways to go. But um, we will get through those in particular. I am so excited to be able to bring this message to you from 1 Timothy. And that, chapter 1, we're going to focus our attention on verse 19. Before we get there, Briefly, let's recover what we have learned on the conscience. We've studied that the conscience is your inner impulse to do what you should do. That is the conscience. It is uniquely different from the work of the law that is written on the heart of every man. Through that work, he knows what is right and wrong, but it is the conscience, which is, as often said, that voice within that is motivating in the right direction. And if you go against that voice, it will tell you as much. So in that way, it seems that the conscience, even though it is within us, it acts as if it is independent of us. It is able to cast judgments on what we think, what we do, what we say. It is the inner impulse to do what you should do. We've studied it, and we've seen that in general, the conscience is before a person is saved, it is an evil conscience. It's not a conscience that is guilty because it has sin lying upon it. And that conscience must be cleansed. We studied that in the book of Hebrews. We also saw once someone has been saved, once he's been converted, he then has a good conscience and he desires to do God's will. He should want to do what he ought to do given what God has said he should do. We've studied a number of passages along that line, how we ought to desire a good conscience. Even as we study First Timothy 1, we saw that a good conscience is necessary for the development of Christian love. That is extremely important. And as we've gone on, we've seen that a type of good conscience is a clear conscience. That's what we need to strive for, to strive to have a clear conscience. Last week, we dealt with the problem of the conscience. And that's when we sin. And our conscience reminds us we've sinned. We have a guilty conscience. And while you're not going to find a passage that uses the words guilty conscience cleared, we do find passages that talk about a Christian being guilty because guilt is simply uh, what happens when someone sins. He becomes guilty. And then we have to understand, well, how does... How does a Christian supposed to handle times that he sins when he has a guilty conscience? And it's only cleared as he confesses his sin. And that really is a pivotal message in the course of the series just to show us how do we deal with the times that we don't go along with what our conscience wants us to do. So we studied, in particular, the confession of sin. Now today, my brothers and sisters in the Lord, let's consider a good conscience rejected. A good conscience rejected. Let's pray. Father, as we study these things together, we ask that you would use your word 
to sanctify your people. We understand and completely admit that we will not be more like Christ by mere human philosophy or speeches on how to be good citizens. But Lord, instead what we need most of all is to understand what you've already said in your word, the Bible. So Lord, we ask that you would use it and that you would use it to fashion us to be more like you so that Jesus Christ would be exalted by all of us who are made more and more like him to his glory. We pray in his name. Amen. This last Wednesday night, Bell and Celesta were driving in the kids' car in the backyard before the service. And I had to smile to see them drive around and have such a good time. And perhaps their times driving around is going to help them one day when they have to go to driver's ed class and uh, learn how to drive a car for real. Perhaps it'll help them. I know one of the things that they will one day learn in driver's ed is about the components of a car. And some of the components of the car that everyone needs to know about is the dashboard. It's that thing behind the wheel, all those lights, all those gauges. Obviously, the speedometer is very important, but there are, another, there are a number of other things on that dashboard that are important. And especially when you see a light come on, when you see a warning light. Whenever you see the engine warning light, that is always unnerving. Not always because you certainly have a problem right that instant, but the problem you have is probably going to be expensive. That's why it's unnerving. But there is a light that when it comes on, it's a light you can't ignore for very long and expect to get where you want to go. In our study of the conscience, we've learned that the conscience is your inner impulse to do what you should do. We have seen that the conscience functions based on knowledge. It evaluates what it knows, what you've done, what you intend to do. And when you make a determination to do something or when you have done something, the conscience will either side with you or against you. It only goes one way or the other. That's it. There are no shades of gray. And those judgments of conscience, they demonstrate themselves in various states of the conscience. Trying to say, when you look at the conscience and how it works, and you look at the scriptures, you don't usually just talk about the conscience in general. The conscience is something that people have. But it also is something that is often in a particular state. In other words, you have a good conscience. The conscience is registering in your favor. Or you have a guilty conscience. It is registering against you. So you have those contrasting states of the conscience. And so again, we come to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and Paul describes a state of the conscience. He talks about a good conscience. In verse 5, we saw that the good conscience is essential for Christian love. I invite you to look in your Bibles at 1 Timothy 1.5. The aim of our charge is love. That's the point of preaching. 
Love for God, love for others. The aim of our charge is love. That issues from, among other things, a good conscience. So since a good conscience is essential for developing Christian love, we should strive to have a good conscience. We should strive to live in such a way that we're doing what we believe we should be doing. That's the fundamental truth. But what would happen if you didn't strive to do that? That's what we'll consider today. What would happen if you chose to live a good life, perhaps chose to live a religious life, but you really didn't intend to live in a a life that shows that you're trying to take what God says seriously, that you're trying to take what God says and submit to what he's saying? I want you to look further down in 1 Timothy 1, where Paul is going to charge Timothy in verse 18, to wage a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. And then Paul describes what will happen if you reject a good conscience, verse 19 and 20. By rejecting this, by rejecting a good conscience, some have made shipwreck their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is another passage on the conscience. And in short, some have shipwrecked their faith by rejecting a good conscience. Therefore, a good conscience is essential to retaining your faith. As we go through this text today, I want to answer three questions in the message. First, I want to answer this question. What does it mean to shipwreck your faith? What does it mean to shipwreck your faith? Second, what does it mean to reject a good conscience? And third, how does rejecting a good conscience lead to a shipwrecked faith? Those are the questions we'll ask. So what does it mean to shipwreck the faith? Well, number one this morning, to shipwreck your faith is to lose your faith. To shipwreck your faith is to lose your faith because a ship that is shipwrecked is lost. And Paul, who wrote this to Timothy, had been in a few shipwrecks himself. And his fourth time that he was shipwrecked is recorded for us in Acts chapter 27. You remember that he was sailing to Rome. And of course, his sailing was delayed. It got late in the season, which was storm season. They came across a bad storm. Things were not good for them. Pick up reading in Acts 27, verse 39. They planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. So they're they're just sailing. No direction, no rudder. They're just going. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck. The bow stuck and remained unmovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. And you remember how those who couldn't swim grabbed onto pieces of the ship. What was amazing about that is that all 276 passengers made its shore alive. They all lived through it. The ship, it didn't make it. The ship was broken in pieces. The ship was a total loss. And so when a person's faith is shipwrecked, it's broken to pieces. A faith that is shipwrecked is one that is lost. And Paul gives examples. He says, Hymenaeus and Alexander have lost their faith. 
We don't know everything about these people. We can't even be sure that these people are mentioned somewhere else in Scripture. But what we do know is that Timothy must have known them. The church of Ephesus must have known them. Some commentators believe that these two were once part of the Ephesian church and probably a part of the leadership of that church. But they were let go from that church. And it was the Apostle Paul who led in the way. They had lost their faith, so they lost the affirmation of their church. So to, to shipwreck your faith is to lose your faith. So the matter that Paul is describing to Timothy is not something that is trivial. That's why Paul used a graphic image of shipwreck, and he's doing it to teach a lesson. And this is the kind of thing that is done all the time. Young people, in a few short years, you are going to take driver's education. A few short years. Even though that is draining the blood from your parents in this moment. In driver's ed, you're going to be taught the laws of the road and the operations of your car. And the part that your mom and dad remember is not all about those laws that we read in the book. It's those videos that we had to watch. Because we were all forced to watch videos, story after story after story of disastrous car accident that was due to drinking and driving. And even as those videos were meant to shock us as young people about the gravity of getting behind the wheel after drinking, so we have these stories of Hymenaeus and Alexander who are set before us. Why? To arrest our attention. Specifically, to arrest the attention of Pastor Timothy and the congregation in Ephesus. This is something they take notice of. The loss of personal faith is a real possibility among professing believers. Now, your trigger-happy systematic theology may be kicking in at this point in the sermon. And you might be thinking, well, what about eternal security? What about once saved, always saved? How is it possible that someone can lose his faith? Well, we do believe in eternal security. We do believe that God grants repentance unto life, that God grants faith to him who believes, that God is the one who predestinates, calls, justifies, and certainly he will glorify all whom he does. God is going to save, ultimately, all who have trusted in him. Absolutely, that's true. Now certainly those same doctrines would have been taught in the church of Ephesus. And certainly Hymenaeus and Alexander were at one time affirmed as genuine believers in that church. They were part of the church, yet they lost their faith, which proved that they didn't have genuine saving faith in the first place. You say, what kind of faith is this? Well, you remember the faith that James talks about, the kind of faith that is faith without works, that's dead. Or you remember the kind of faith that Jesus talked about in the parable of the soils where the seed fell on, it was, I believe, the rocky soil where it it was short-lived. It came and it went. You see, there are types of faith that are intellectual. There are types of faith that are emotional that fall short 
of true saving faith, the true saving faith that bears fruit. And Paul is setting forth these two as a warning of losing personal faith. So it is important. It is something that we have to consider. What does it mean to shipwreck your faith? It means to lose it. Now, secondly, let's ask this question and answer it. What does it mean to reject a good conscience? What's it mean to reject a good conscience? Well, secondly, this morning, you reject a good conscience by choosing to do what you shouldn't. You reject a good conscience by choosing to do what you shouldn't. This is disobedience. It's refusing to listen. It's going against what you know. It means you reject the guidance of the conscience. You all remember the sad story of King David, who in a time when he should have been at war out with his army battling, he was at home. And he thought that he would go have someone. He saw someone, and he sat and inquired about her. And it was very interesting because we have a person who functions like a Jiminy Cricket. There's an unnamed person seemingly in the palace who says to the king, Isn't this person, isn't she Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? There's an unnamed person who says to the king, this is another man's wife. You know she's off limits, right? We have someone who basically said what must have been said by David's conscience. But David rejected what he knows. He refused in this instance to apply God's word to his life. And while you and I may have not committed the same sin that David committed, we have done the same thing that David did when we've gone against conscience, when we've gone against what we know is right. We've done that same kind of thing. You see, the rejection of conscience is an eyes-wide-open kind of decision. To give us some more examples, it's like the worthless servant. The one who chose to bury the single talent that his master had given him. He knew what kind of master he had, but he made the choice to bury that talent. Not a good choice. Or it's like the unfaithful servant who busied himself with other things like eating and drinking when he should have been managing his master's household. The master returned, inspected him. It was not good. That unfaithful servant knew his job, but he daily delayed doing his job. Why? Well, his master wasn't present to check up on him. My master's delayed, he said, he thought. And what we learn from those examples is that rejection may be today's decision, or it may be a daily decision. In either case, it's setting aside what God has said. And I bring these things up so that we can have some kind of guide when we examine ourselves. You know, there may be a clear instance in your life that you can think of when you rebelled against God on a particular matter, on a particular day. There may be also a clear habit of forsaking each day what you know is right. When those things are done, 
when the conscience is rejected, it is rejecting the guidance of the conscience. And when you reject the guidance of the conscience, you may also reject the guilt of the conscience. One has said that guilt is God's warning that something threatens the well-being of the soul. But sadly, people often dismiss the warning. It made me think of how people in the morning often press snooze on the alarm. They just dismiss, dismiss. Ten more minutes, no problem. Ten more minutes, no problem. Eventually, there's going to be a problem. The bus is not going to wait for you. The job is going to keep going. It's not good. And it was the people of Israel who are examples of folks who they didn't respond to the guilt of their sin. The prophet Jeremiah bemoaned them. He talks about them and says this, Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. The point is is that they were unaffected by their sin because they had come to have a habit of suppressing their guilt. These were the kinds of people who didn't keep short sin accounts with God. Instead, they kept on adding sin to their tab. Just kept adding it. No worries. So to reject a good conscience is to reject the guilt of the conscience. It's choosing to do what you shouldn't do. That's what it means to reject a good conscience. So we have seen the loss of faith, and we've seen the rejection of the conscience. Now thirdly, and most importantly, we need to consider the connection between the two. How does rejecting a good conscience lead to a shipwrecked faith? Well, if the conscience relates to what you do and your faith to what you believe, then Paul is teaching that your behavior impacts your belief. Paul is teaching your behavior impacts your belief. Their faith was shipwrecked, how? By the rejection of conscience. So brothers and sisters in the Lord, just consider, how does your faith fare when you struggle with sin? Obviously, you know that sin separates. Every sin draws you apart from God. And when we sin, we feel distant from God. And when that happens, how does our faith fare? Don't we feel weak in those moments? Don't we struggle to believe what we should believe? You see, in those moments, we struggle because we've gone against what we say we believe. There's the conflict. You say, well, what do you do when that happens? Well, we studied that all last week. You confess your sin. You forsake your sin. And you do it as fast as you can. But brothers and sisters in the Lord, we need to take notice of the impact of our behavior on what we believe Put this all back into what we've already learned about the conscience. The conscience functions based on knowledge. And we can fill up our minds with all kinds of norms of right and wrong, whether they're social or scientific or scriptural, all kinds of ideas of what is right and wrong. But the choices that we make are also entered into that knowledge base. You could call it applied knowledge. 
And when the conscience recalibrates after that knowledge update, choices begin to weigh heavier on the conscience than convictions. What you do begins to matter more to your conscience than what you say you believe. In fact, your behavior can debunk what you say you believe. That was the story of Hymenaeus and Alexander. They professed faith in Christ, yet they chose to do wrong. They chose to go against the good conscience. And in the end, their, ship, their faith was shipwrecked. And their story, which is sad, is altogether common. Let's turn together to Matthew 7. Matthew 7, that's the last chapter in Matthew's Gospel for the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7. In this sermon, Jesus described the future judgment day. And you remember that it will be a miserable day for many, many people. Because Jesus said, many will say in that day, verse 22, Lord, Lord, didn't I do in summary, good things in your name. And we have the list of what they did. Prophet in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name. Didn't I do all these things in your name, Lord? And I want you to notice their confession. Because they do have faith, some kind of faith, because they say, Lord, Lord. Now I want you to notice how Jesus evaluates them. What is Jesus's perfect estimation of those people who said, Lord, Lord? Look at the last word of verse 23. It also begins with L. Lawless. He will say, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So they said, Lord, Lord, and he answers, lawless. Say, how how does that work together? Well, Jesus explains that irony in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. And he asks this question. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I tell you? You see, there's the condemnation. You say, Lord, Lord, but you don't treat me like the Lord. You don't obey me. Obviously, these people that Christ speaks of in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about the future judgment day. Indeed, those professing believers will have done many works that are religious, but Jesus will reveal that their works are not righteous. And it will be their lawless behavior that exposes their false belief. So in a very sober way, Paul is teaching Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 the importance of a good conscience. And he does that by setting forth a bad example, a negative example. Some have made shipwreck their faith. How? By rejecting conscience. And to put it in the simplest terms I know how, Paul taught, you will not long believe in a God you don't obey. You will not long believe a God you don't obey. The warning lights on your car dashboard are very important. 
But there's a light on your dashboard that you cannot ignore for long and expect to get where you're going. It's the low-fuel light. You can't ignore it. If you're going to make it to your destination, you better go to the gas station first. Even so, if you're going to retain your faith, you better listen to your conscience. That's what we learn. Father, we ask that you would use these sober words that the apostle gave to young Timothy and to the church at Ephesus. May these words rest upon our hearts as well. May we not believe that we are better than any of those. May we, Lord, be the kinds of people who take what you say seriously and not have the impression that we can do a number of good things in our life, a number of religious things, show up on Judgment Day and think that you will accept us and receive us. Lord, if you are indeed the Lord of our life, we must listen to you. Not just in what we do in a few hours on Sunday, but throughout the week, so that our behavior will reinforce what we believe, that we truly believe that you are Jesus Christ, the Lord. Father, we ask that you would take this and apply it to our hearts and that we would not soon forget it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.